Well, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 3 this morning, 3, 1 through 17. And uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Kevin Barra. I'm the youth pastor here at Grace Bible Church, and I'm so excited to be here with you. Um, Previously, people told me to bring a picture of my family. I didn't, but I brought my wife, and uh, she's up front here. And uh, I have a a three-year-old daughter named Peyton, a two-year-old son named Micah, and a four-month-old son named Jesse. And so Thanksgiving was fun with three, three and under. And uh, so I hope your Thanksgiving was good as well. So... Colossians chapter 3, I'm reading from the ESV, verses 1 through 17. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is seated, at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scathian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing songs and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Well, I have a story I want to open up with, and uh, it is one of my favorite stories, and I got permission to share it, so here we go. Um, years ago, there was a guy and he wanted to ask this girl on a date. And so he calls her up and says, hey, next Friday, would you like to go out? And she says, no, sorry, I've got plans. I'm going to be doing this thing and I, I can't. And she says, all right. Well, the next week rolls around. So he calls her again at the beginning of the week. Hey, would you like to go out on a date? And she says, no, I, I'm sorry. I've got, I've got this thing coming up. I, I, I can't go out. And so he's bummed at this point. Two rejections is bad. But he's not going to be dissuaded yet. So he's kind of thinking about how can I ask her out again? And he receives a call over the weekend. And she says, hey, next Friday, I'm not doing anything. I'd love to go on a date with you. And he's thinking, perfect. The only problem is Monday, the next week, he gets the flu. And he can't keep anything down. I mean, everything uh, is just terrible. But he's thinking to himself, okay, I can't cancel because I want to go out with this girl. And I'll just, I'll be fine for Friday. I'll load up with meds. I'll be all right. And so Friday rolls around, he's feeling miserable, but he can't cancel now. And they live up in the Northeast and he knows, okay, we're going to get on train. We're going to go downtown, dinner, movie. It'll be fine. I think I can do it. So he goes to her dorm, picks her up. They get on the train. They head into the city. They get out. They go through the movie. Everything's fine. Then they go out to dinner and he orders something light thinking, I'll just eat something light. It'll be fine. 
And they get through about midway and he, his stomach just starts rumbling. And so he excuses himself politely, goes to the bathroom and loses it. I mean, just all in the toilet. Just, it, it, was, it was terrible. But then he looks up and he kind of smiles because he goes, hey, one time on this date is not bad. So he washes his face, goes back to dinner. He sits there. They finish up. They order the check. He gets the che- about to leave as the check is coming. And he goes, oh my gosh, this is uncontrollable. And so he gets up, says, excuse me one more time. Speed walks to the bathroom. But on the way, he doesn't get there. And he loses it all over the front of his pants. So he goes to the bathroom and cleans off the best that he can. Pulls his shirt out. He's thinking, how do I recover from this? He goes and sneaks in, sits down next to her. And the check comes, signs, they get up to go. And as they walk out of the restaurant, he sees the Gap clothing store. He goes, perfect. I will buy another pair of khakis and, and I will change and it'll be fine. I'll cover it up. So they go in there. He says, hey, you go look at your stuff. I'll look at my stuff. He goes, grabs a pair of khakis and a sweater. Then he goes to the cashier. And the girl at this point is starting to walk towards him. And he says to the cashier under his breath, not the sweater. The cashier's like, what? Not the sweater. By then the girl comes up. Cashier puts it in the bag, gives it to him. They're off. They go to the train. He sits her down in the train. He says, I'm going to go to the bathroom. Third time, one date. Not great, not terrible, but he goes to the bathroom. He As soon as he gets there, he rips off his pants, opens up the window, throws the pants out the window, closes it up, looks in the bag, and it's the sweater. Why do I tell you that? For this one simple reason, and it's where Paul is going this morning, it's where we're headed this morning, and it's this. Know what you're going to put on. Know what you're going to put on. Now we find ourselves in a text um, that's very interesting. And Paul in this section really contrasts two things. Hey, there's an old you and there are things about the old you that need to be put off. And there is a new you and it requires that we in embracing our new us to put on new things. And before we jump into that, I just wanted to ask you a question. Like what has caused Christianity to have the impact that it has? I mean, what has caused like this small little fledgling, fledgling group of 12 fishermen, uneducated fishermen, all of a sudden to blow up to over 2.3 billion people that call themselves Christians in the world today, shown by Pew Research? How do we go from this small group to, a, to a, a force in the world? And I'll tell you, largely it's because these people put on this new that we're talking about. You see, these people had a radical intersection with the person of Jesus. And this interaction, this intersection, this relationship brought so many new things that they moved in an entirely new direction. And they moved in a direction that was, that was confusing to the world that they ran in. In fact, it was so r- remarkable that even some of the emperors of the day noticed Julian, Emperor Julian, ruled the Roman Empire from 332 to 363 AD. And he was trying at this time to rejuvenate the old Roman gods and the old Roman worship. But he couldn't combat the Christians. He said this of the Christians, atheism, that is the Christian faith, has been specially advanced through the loving service to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there's not even a single Jew who is a beggar 
And that these godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help we should render them. He says, as I look at these Christians, they're they're moving in this faith. And the way that they love us is amazing. And as I'm trying to promote this different faith, I realize I can't compete with that. They've been so revolutionized by their relationship with Jesus that they so love everyone else that it's changed everything. And, and he calls them godless because they don't worship the pantheon of gods. They just worship one God. And he says, I don't know what to do with them. I hate them, but they're so loving. What do I do? The reason this small group of fishermen following an unemployed Jewish carpenter were able to revolutionize the world was because they put on this new. And if we put on this new, we also can be people that change our culture, our community, and continue to speak loudly the truths of the gospel in a world that is always looking for a reason to hate him. So the first thing we got to do is know what to put off. What is the old what is the old thing? So before we jump into this, I, I would say this of these old things. They're very familiar. They're very comfortable. They're very normal. And in fact, these things are things that we have walked in. We've lived in. That's what Paul says of them. But here's the thing. Every new relationship means we've got to put off old things. Men, you know this when you got married. You had the lazy boy recliner. You and your roommates, you found it in a dumpster in college, and you've had phenomenal days in that Lazy Boy, right? You've spilled Coke and pizza and all sorts of stuff on it. It's a mess, but it's so comfortable. I mean, it feels so good. But when you bowed your knee to that girl and said, hey, we doing this? And she, for some reason, said, "Uh uh-huh. She also said, but that, you got to get rid of, right? And those cut-off jean shorts, mm mm-mm, get rid of them. See, we've got to put off what's old if we are going to grab what's new and really live a new thing. But we've got to look closely at what these old things are. And in verse 5, he says, we need to put to death what is earthly among us. Verse 7 says, these are the things in which you once walked. See, these are things that are comfortable, normative. Everyone runs in them. In fact, we all ran in them. But he says in verse 6, These are the things that God is going to come to destroy. When God comes again, all of these things aren't going to exist. So we should take them seriously because God takes them seriously. And the first list that he lines out are basically things, are basically a new perspective of how we view people. And the words that he uses are basically in this large category of immorality. It says immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires. All of this is kind of contained in this general idea of immorality, chasing things for my own pleasures, viewing people as objects to fulfill my desires or greed, covetousness, as some translations have. Basically saying, what can I get for me to elevate myself? Really, this is the root of all selfishness. I see people as objects to benefit me not people to serve. So these people on the computer screen are people that are there for my enjoyment, not a daughter of someone, not someone that needs to be cared for or loved. They're there for me. This person, they're just there for my benefit. I view people as objects. The second list that he lines out 
is basically this, to, to see people as enemies. He says, put off anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech, lying. And, and why do these things grow within us? It's because we view people as not people to serve and care for and love. We view them as enemies. We view them as people that are trying to steal something from us. They're trying to steal our glory. They're trying to steal our spotlight. They're trying to take our promotion. They're trying to take from us to give, to give themselves. And, and, and we get so frustrated when we see people that, that we, honestly, we see them as enemies and not people to serve. And so why do we get angry? Well, because this person said this thing and, and I just, I need to defend myself. And when anger grows and festers, it becomes malice. It's you fly off the handle as soon as you even think of that person. It becomes wrath and then it becomes malice. It becomes thoughts of how you can get revenge. Or it moves in slander. We tear their reputation down. We, pull, we, we try to elevate ourselves up and make sure that person doesn't, is not seen as positive in the light of our friends or our group or whatever we're running in. We slander them. We, abusive, we use abusive speech. We, we, we speak poorly of them or we lie. We say, hey, well, this is me, that's them, or, or we just distort the truth. And what Paul says is, look, if we're going to put on what's new, if we're going to change the culture, we've got to put on new things because everyone else, this is common. This is normal. This is what everyone else runs in. But us, we don't. You know, what's interesting is that, that these things are so common and they're shown in every movie we watch, right? In, in a lot of movies. In fact, all you got to do is watch an Al Pacino film and you see that these are the things that are, are brought to the top. I'm not recommending the movies at all, but two films kind of show how this is played out in a, in a very dark way. One is the movie Godfather. The other is the movie Scarface. I'm not recommending the movies whatsoever, but both of them show a man who is in the pursuit of these things. And he chases pursuing these goals for his ends and abusing and pushing down everyone else around him. He ends up alone separate from his family and in a very dark place. And we see this. I mean, when we move in anger, when we move in wrath, when we see people as objects or enemies, it destroys marriages. It wrecks friendships. If we move in this old, what we will do is leave a wake of destruction. But the problem is, these things are so comfortable for us. They're so natural. I mean, we can look at the crazy ones and be like, I would never do that, but we do it in really small ways. You see, there's something deep within our hearts that is dark and that needs to be fixed. And so how do you dislodge this dark thing within us? Love. My sister uh, adopted a dog years ago and she was so excited about this little dog. And she's like, it's kind of like a border collie little thing. And, and I saw it. She brought it like one Thanksgiving for us to see. His name was Moby and it was just a mangy little mutt. And I was like, what, 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 what is this? This is completely unimpressive. And, and the dog, as soon as she brought it up, she goes, go ahead and pet it. And I, I reached down to pet it and it peed on the floor and ran away in fear. I was like, why do you love this dog? And, and then I watched my sister interact with this dog and love this dog. And, and 
what would happen is, I don't know if it was abused when it was younger or it grew up in a bad circumstance, but as she loved it, she would give it treats and she would train it. She took it to a dog trainer to get really trained, like well done dog, right? And she gave it, showered this dog with so much love that within months, years, suddenly this dog was free, interacted with people easily. In fact, the dog trainer said to, her, to my sister, this is impressive. You want to adopt some more? Because it's amazing how much you loved this dog into change. And that's exactly what God does for us. Look at me in verse 12. He says this to the Colossians. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. He gives them three characteristics in which he calls us to see ourselves. He calls us chosen, holy, and beloved. He says, I want you to see yourself as people that were selected, separated. The root of holy is the idea of separate, other, and special. When you think about yourself, I want you to have an entirely new identity in which God views you. What is new, first of all? That you have to receive an entirely new identity. You're chosen. Everyone who is in Christ is picked to be on the team. And it's not, you aren't picked because of what you can give to the team. You're not picked because of what you can produce. It's not something within you that is so significant that God couldn't live without you, but he chose you because he loves you. It says of Israel, I chose you because I loved you. You weren't the most of all the nations. You weren't so impressive in all that you had. I picked you because I loved you and I separated you out. You're seen as special. I'm going to use you for something significant. And he also says in verse, verses one through four, he gives us this myriad of things that we have received in Christ. He says, first of all, that you are in a new place. You are raised. Verse one says this, if then, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated. He says, first of all, you've received a new place. See, every one of us runs in sin. It is the natural, normal mode for all of us. But God in his grace forgives sinners and brings us into new life. And it's almost as if the old has been dead and buried with Christ and we are then raised to walk in newness of life. The old is dead. You have been raised. But you're also seated with Christ. He says, you now have an entirely new friend, best friend, who is at the right hand of God, who is on your side. He is with you. The old has passed away, the new has come, and he's given you a new buddy to run with, with Jesus. The King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, is your new best friend. And then lastly, we've got new promises. He says in verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. You see, the reason we don't have to claw for significance in this place is because Jesus says, look, when Christ appears, everything that's been given to him is going to be given to you. Don't worry about significance. Don't worry about status. Don't worry about protecting your identity and your reputation and speaking and doing all sorts of things to elevate yourself. Because look, you're putting Christ Everything that was given to him is freely yours. You've got an entirely new identity. But see, when you receive that, when you know that, it never stops there. Because God's gifts are never meant to stay stagnant. They're always meant to move. 
And the next thing that he says you have is this. You have a new community. Look with me in verse 14. I'm sorry, verse uh, 11. He says, Here there is neither Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, scathian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. He says, there, in this new community that you've been placed in, there's no ethnic divisions. There's no diversity. You have been fully given all, everything in Christ and you've been given a new people. And you know what? You need people. Over the Thanksgiving break, I was reading some articles on torture. It's a fun Thanksgiving. And one of the torture methods that they have is actually isolation. And and what they, they talked about a guy who was a journalist imprisoned by Hezbollah during the 1980s. And what they would do to this man is they would torture him predominantly through isolation. And as he was alone in this cell, it says this. He wrote in his memoir, the mind is blank. Jesus, I always thought I was smart. Where are all the things that I learned, the books I read, the poems I memorized? There's nothing there, just a formless gray, black misery. My mind is gone. God, help me. See, his captors would take him and seek him for months alone. And when he found himself in that lonely place, he realized he couldn't think straight. He was not normal. And every now and then they would stick him with a community. And he, he says this of the community at the end of it. He says, look, I realized that, that I would rather have the worst companion than no companion at all. It's like, I need people. We need people. See, God has wired it that way that you would have a community of people to run with. In fact, there was one thing in the garden that wasn't good. Adam was made in a perfect place, placed in the midst of perfection, and there was only one thing not good. What was it? It wasn't good for man to be alone. And so he made him a helper suitable. I mean, think about it. Adam had the perfect quiet time, 24 hours a day. If he were to ask God, God, do you love me? He would say, like no one else. Because there was like no one else, right? It was a perfect moment. But even then, God said, it is not good for you to be alone. I wired you for community. See, the Bible is a story about how it starts with a small group in the middle of a rural location and they move to a gigantic city. At the end of Revelation, it says there'll be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation celebrating the glory of God, singing in the throne room. See, our movement is a, is a movement from a few to the many and there is no division, no isolation. You have a new identity and a new us. Look around. That is your new community created in Christ, in Christ Jesus. In fact, every you in this passage is in the plural. It's y'all. Y'all have a new identity. Y'all have new promises. We have all of this together and we need us. And you know what? You know why else you need us? Because it's only in us that we can fully accomplish the purposes of God And it's only with us that we find fullness of joy. I ran track in college. And there was a guy on the team who was a phenomenal pole vaulter. So my freshman year, we go to the conference meet. And by this time, this pole vaulter had all the accolades you could want. He was a national champion. He had vaulted over 19 feet as a college sophomore. Very few people can do that. He was a phenomenal athlete. But by the time we got to the conference meet, his senior year, he was done. 
He was, he was exhausted with pole vaulting. He was done with track and, and he, he was just done. And track by, by its nature seems to be kind of an isolationist sport. You know, kind of everyone's doing their own thing. They're running forever. They're running really fast. They're jumping over stuff. You know, like it seems like an isolationist event, right? But not at the conference championship. Because if you want to win, you need everyone contributing the best they can for the common good. And so at this meet, there was our enemy, and they were Nebraska. Or was Nebraska, right? And, and, and we wanted to beat them. But in order to beat them, we needed every person to contribute everything they could. We needed everyone to be at their best. And so what would happen is we would do our event and we'd go to the long jump and we're clapping, dun, 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 celebrating the long jump, guys. We're going to the pole vault. We're going to the high jump. We're watching the sprints. We're watching the 10K, you know? We're watching all of it celebrating because we need every person on the field to compete at their best. And, and this guy at the end of the meet said, I've never had so much fun. I've never had so much fun at a meet when I finally realized it's not about me, it's about us. You know how we get to be people that change this world, revolutionize and have fun in the, in the process? You get to celebrate them. You get everyone to be doing everything at top notch. We're not trying to tear people down. We're not trying to fight for our own position. We celebrate them because when everyone does their best, then everyone wins. And it is exciting to be a part of that. But you know the problem with, problem with this new community? We are called to embrace one another. But there's a challenge in this. See, these first two pieces, receiving a new identity and embracing a new community, those are things you're kind of placed in. The last one is that we have to work to preserve a new unity. This last one, Paul spends a little bit more time on because it's actually a lot harder. Because what we're called to is to embrace our community, but in order to remain a unified group requires work. And there's really two ways in which Paul lines out in which we do this. And the first one is this. We are ones that need to be fortified by love. Read with me in verse 14. It says in verse 14, And above all of these put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The word binds there is basically the word for ligament. It's joint. It's the thing that holds everything together. In fact, athletes know you need ligaments if you want to play the game, right? So Derek Rose, one of the best basketball players in the NBA, last year tore his ACL in his right leg. Out for the season. Without this ligament holding things together, you don't get on the field or the court. This year, he tore his meniscus in his left leg. He's out for the rest of the season. People are questioning, will he ever compete at this level? You see, if we don't have our ligaments strong, fueled, fortified by love, then we won't ever do, accomplish the pieces God wants us to as a community. And, he's, and how do we fortify these by love? He says, what we do is we forgive one another. He says specifically, he says, put on a heart of compassion and kindness, and humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another, whoever has a complaint against one another, just as the Lord forgave you, so also you should forgive. 
That means when I see this other person and they are irking me, I forgive them. Why? Because I need them to be all they can be for us to win. And I've been so forgiven. Forgive because you have been so forgiven. Love because you have been so loved. We move in love because of what we have received from our king. We're not victims. We have received so much. So we move in love. The strength of our community and the success we have in joining with God is how seriously we take our ability and commitment to love one another. And the last thing that he says is this, that this love, this unity is fueled with thanks. Look at verse 15, 16, and 17. At the end of each verse, he basically says, be thankful. In verse 16, he says, um, giving thanks to the Lord. In verse, seven, verse 16 and verse 17, he also says, give thanks to the Lord um, through Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God through the Father. What he says is, I want thankfulness to be a thread that is moving between every one of you. And the reason he says that is because it's hard to be angry with someone that you're trying to be thankful for. Think about it. In verse 15, he says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to indeed you are called in one body and be thankful. He says, let peace reign. How do we let peace reign in our hearts? We choose to be thankful for them. Have you ever been angry with someone? Like frustrated? Maybe a Christian spouse, like been angry with them? Here's my challenge to you. Next time you find yourself angry with someone, get a piece of paper, write down on the list, write down all the reasons you are thankful for that individual. How hard is it to maintain bitterness if all you're thinking about is how you've been blessed by that individual? Do it next time with your spouse. I love my wife because she does this and this and she's this way. She's loving towards me. She's loving toward our kids. She's given me kids. I, just all of these things. She's amazing in so many ways. You write down what you're thankful for and it's hard to hold bitterness in your heart when you're just thinking about how they've blessed you. The next thing that he says is this, let the word of Christ dwell within you with thanksgiving. What he says is I want you to be filled with the word of God. I want it to be on your heart, on your mind. Constantly you are absorbing the words of God and then you are looking for opportunities to lift them up. He says encouraging one another with songs and hymns and spiritual songs. That means we are absorbing the words of God, being indwelling in the truth and then we are looking for opportunities to speak it. And the last thing he says, hey, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks. He says, I want you to, th- to look at everything you do in life and I want you to infuse that with thanksgiving. You want to preserve unity in a people? You cover it with love. You fortify these relationships with love because we forgive them. And You fuel your heart and mind with a thankfulness for these people God has given you. Why can we love? Because we've been so loved. Why can we forgive? Because you've been so forgiven. Why can we serve even people that have wronged us terribly? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. During World War II, there was a a group of French Huguenots 
And they were um, French Christians, loved the Lord, and they saw the, the, the ravaging that was occurring against the Jews, how they were being taken and, and tortured and all sorts of stuff. And they said to themselves, hey, we, we can't let this go on. We've got to do something. And there was two people in particular, Pastor Trome and his wife Magna, that they saw the Germans taking the Jews and they said, we've got to put a stop to this. And so they started protecting the Jews. They started hiding them in their house, protecting them from other people. And the Germans got wind of this. And so they came to their house, knocked on the door, pulled out Pastor Trome, handcuffed him, and were leading him out. And it was dinner time. Magna had dinner all on the stove. And she looked to the men that were taking her husband away to go in a concentration camp and said, Hey, do you want to eat first? And people asked her later on, like, how could you forgive them? How could you move in such grace and forgiveness when they have wronged, they're taking your husband and you may never see him again. How could you move in such love? And, and she kind of passed it off like, well, you know, the food was there. We had to eat. And, but these people were so infused by the relationship with Jesus, by the truths of what they have in Christ, that they could love even an enemy to make him a friend. Can we be people that are so infused by what we have in Christ, so put on the new, that when people look at us, they see an uncommon love as we move? I pray that we can be people that say, Lord, I've been so forgiven, I can forgive them. I have been so loved, let me love them. I have been so served by you, your life, death, and resurrection on the cross, taking all my sin on yourself and giving me a full freedom, full new joy. I can forgive them. I tell you what, if we are a community that embraces that, this truth of the gospel will spread powerfully. For me as a youth pastor, um, final story, one of the things that discourages me the most is when I get a call from a parent and they say, my kid isn't connecting. I'm like, oh man. And one of the things that makes me so encouraged is when I get a phone call from a parent and they say, my daughter, my son had the best time, the friends that they had, that it, was, it changed. The, and I say, that is what I want. How much more so with God? If we move in love, we will invite him in and change this world. I pray that we can take that seriously. Father, I thank you so much for this morning. And I thank you so much that you are the one that loved us first. Not because we deserved it, but because that's the God that you are. And you chose us in Christ and you blessed us in Christ. You've given us so much in Christ. And Lord, I know that myself and a lot of us here, we, we don't really dwell on those truths. We kind of push them aside. And so, Lord, in this season of Thanksgiving, I pray that we might think about all that we have received in you. And, Lord, as we see people that, have, that irk us, that, that maybe haven't even received the grace of God, I pray that we would be hurt and broken for them and that we would move in love towards them. And I pray for friendships to be mended, relationships to be mended during this season as we continue to put off the old and put on what's new in you. We love you. It's in your precious name we pray, Jesus. Amen. Y'all have a great morning.